0: Uh, welcome to another episode of industry standard with me fairy cats uh so i often like to do at the beginning of these podcasts, i like to tell a story that sort of relates to my guest or uh, or the world of my guest and so i figured i never get a chance to tell the story and how it relates to to bud friedman uh and comedy well you'd be the judge but uh Tell you a little bit about my background, how I got into stand-up comedy, which I don't think you uh, know about. Is um, my father passed away when I was four, and as I was growing up, I uh, would explore in the basement, and I always noticed this file cabinet, this old freestanding tall file cabinet, uh, the old kind uh, that was rusty, and I'd always try to open it, would never open, and I was too young to figure it out. And then when I was a teenager. I finally pried open the drawers, and every drawer was open, the first, the second, the third. Finally, I pried open that fourth drawer, and I open up this rusty file cabinet, and there's about 50 albums in there, really musty smell. And I flip through the albums, and they're all of black artists, African-American artists. There's... Uh, Louis Armstrong, Nat King Cole, The Supremes, Dinah Washington, Shirley Bassey, who sang Goldfinger. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm growing up in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, which is like the whitest town in the world. And here are all these albums. I'm thinking, was my dad black? I think I remember he was a white guy. But... And there were three white albums in there of white artists, only three. And they were comedy records. One was the Smothers Brothers, which had the crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight. Jonathan Winters, the comedy and tragedy. And the third and final album of a white person was Bob Newhart, the button down mind. So I'm thinking, well, you know, I might as well try to listen to these albums. But the record player console that we had in the basement was all waterlogged and ruined because it had been many years after my dad died. And we didn't have any money, so I had to figure out how am I going to get a record player to be able to play these records and find out if entertainment is my what I'm supposed to get into. So if you remember uh, back when the, uh, you were a twinkle in your mother's eye and I was too, there was something that happened that allowed you to get things that you couldn't get with money. And that was S&H Green Stamps. They'd put the green stamps, one green stamp in your shopping bag for every dollar you spent. You'd paste them into these books. That, uh, and these stamps, they tasted awful. They tasted like sperm. Not, not that I would know what that tastes <laughs> like. But, uh, and, so, and so I got enough books to save up for one of those record players that, you know, had the handle and it folded down with the two speakers on side, but it folded up and you could carry it around brought it home and started listening to some of the music like Shirley Bassey and the Supremes and Nat King Cole, Louis Armstrong and you know it was nice and everything like that but I just and I I started playing the albums. First I played the Smothers Brothers which was cool because they were doing all kinds of music and fun stuff. It was entertaining but really not really moving me as much as I thought it would. Then Jonathan Winters I started playing and he was fascinating, but he was so complicated and so crazy and so out there, my uh, 13-year-old or 14-year-old mind at the time just couldn't wrap myself around it. And then I put on the button-down mind of Bob Newhart, and I listened to it all the way through, and it it just spoke to me. It, it blew me away, and it was a smarter kind of comedy. And for those of you who don't know, Bob Newhart Uh, did something uh, that no one else was doing at the time. He did what's called, I would call a dialogue humor, where he would create a a picture of what it was. He'd be like Vin Scully, commentating on a Dodger game. You'd get the whole picture of what it was, and he'd do all the dialogue of all the people, uh, but not in character voices or anything of that nature. And I really focused in on this great routine that he did called The Driving Instructor, which was a famous routine, which I even... I bet I can remember the first one minute of it. So he would say, like, uh, um, he'd say, there's a group of people who who come to work every day. They don't know if they're going to come home at night. And I'm talking about America's driving instructors. And he would say, picture a car, here's the driving instructor, and seated next to me is a woman driver. Back then, a woman driver is equivalent to probably people shitting on Asian drivers now. Um, and then he would just start and he would say, uh, Mrs. Webb, uh, uh, you're Mrs. Webb, right? Um, uh, let me read down and familiarize myself with your case. Um, uh, Mr. Adams was your instructor, is that correct? Uh, yeah. Uh, how, uh, how, how fast were you going when Mr. Adams jumped from the car? 75. And, and where was that, Mrs. Webb? In, in your driveway. And that's how he would do it. And the laughs were very, very low. And I I didn't know anything about laughs back then, about what kind of laughs it could be until later in life, which Bud and I will talk about. So you had a guy on an album who was getting like titters almost in the crowd. It was like a crowd of maybe like, you know, 100 people. But as the story goes, when Warner Brothers Records asked Bob Newhart to do an album... He said to them, Look, I, I've never done stand up comedy before. I'm 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 a radio guy, I'm a sketch guy. They said, Don't worry about it. Just pick a club and record the album. Turns out, nineteen fifty-nine, that was Warner Brothers Records first gold record. It was a comedy record, which was an incredible thing. So I memorized it and I started doing it at shows at my high school. And I noticed I was killing doing this routine, saying, I'm about to do Bob Newhart routine. I'd like to share it with you as a driving instructor. And I was getting more laughs than Bob Newhart got on the record, and it didn't make any sense to me. As I knew, you know, then I found out it was in a little tiny venue, and I was in a bigger venue. So then I go to Boston University, and I start doing the bit. Uh, The first time I do it on stage, uh, you'll you'll, uh, appreciate this, I think, because I had this desire of doing stand-up comedy. I really wanted to do it. And there was a blizzard in 1978 in Boston. It was a federal emergency. There were no cars on the roads, only people walking around. It was a Saturday night. I was um, just walking around, and I heard laughter. And I looked up, and ironically, there was a brownstone pub called Crossroads in Kenmore Square. I walk up the stairs on a Saturday night, and there's about 30 people watching a comedian who looked like a young Larry from the Three Stooges. He had his foot on a stool, and he was strumming the guitar, and he was saying, Rachel, my dear, wish she was here. Oh, how I miss her. Having sex with Rachel was amazing. It was like a concert. Beach balls would hit me in the head. Frisbees would be flying around the room. And every time she wanted more, she'd light a match thank you. Good night. And he walked out into the night. And later on, I found out that was Stephen Wright. That was the first comedian I ever saw. So I was intrigued. I wanted to do stand up. I knew I wanted to do stand up. And so I signed up for the open mic there. I get there on a Monday. It's packed. I'm ready with my Bob Newhart routine. The guy hosting is this guy, big guy called the taxi driver, Ross Bickford. I'm about to go on. He's like, let me introduce your next act. I don't know this guy. uh, You know, uh, I think he's funny, and he's hung like a buffalo. Please, I'm just kidding. He's not funny. Please welcome Barry Cat. So I get up there. I'm, like, embarrassed, just totally, like, I try to make some joke about him. I do my routine. I say, this is a Bob Newhart routine. I'm going to do this for you. It's one of my favorites. Kills again. I'm thinking, God, this is this is great. This is this is the way it's supposed to be. I don't know anything about the business of this. I start walking out. This guy runs after me. He's like, cats, cats, I got to talk to you. Where'd you come from? I said, I just, I'm from Longmeadow. went to Boston University. He said, listen, I want you back at the open mic next week, but let me give you a little bit of advice, okay, about comedy. I said, sure, what is it? He said, listen, when you're doing somebody else's routine, just take the fucking bit, okay? Just take the bit. Just mention the other person's bit. Don't don't do it. Just go. Just take it. I don't do it. All my all my act is stolen. So that's right then and there. I said to myself, Ah, God, I want to do comedy. This guy's the reason why I got to do comedy and do write my own stuff. So then I write my own stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I wrote my write my own act. I sign up for an open mic night in Inman Square cambridge at a place called the ding ho a chinese restaurant i've been there slash comedy club and it was hosted by lenny clark who a lot of you might know as a guy who was in the larriquette show and he was on rescue me done a lot of different things a very very charismatic boston guy who ran for mayor there just a powerful guy in the comedy community so I just gotten back from the swimming championships. I was captain of the swim team. I'd shaved my head, but I was confident with my own material. I go up, and again, it kills. It's just like unbelievable. I'm like, God, this is comedy thing. This is uh, this is easy stuff. You know what I mean? And and then I get done. I walk out, and again, the host is running after me. This time, Lenny Clark is running running after me. He's like, cats, cats. I'm like, yeah, Lenny, Jesus, you're scaring the shit out of me. Listen, i got to talk to you, man. I don't know where you came from. I don't know how long you've been doing comedy, but that was amazing. You have to come back. You have to come back next week and open my show. And this was a place where back then in Boston you had all these guys like, you know, Stephen Wright and Paula Poundstone and, and all these amazing, amazing comedians mixed in with these open micers, and apparently I was doing as well as the pros. And I I looked at Lenny, because I didn't know anything about comedy, and I said, uh, listen, Lenny, um, I I don't don't think I can write five new minutes (laughs) by next week. And he looked at me, and this is uh, another defining moment in my career in comedy. He looked at me, as they say, like the dog looks at the answering machine, and then he says, you dumb he bastard, (laughs) you stupid fucking kike you retarded Jew motherfucker. What are you talking about? You just come back here, and you just do the same five minutes again, next week, in front of this crowd, who is probably gonna be the same crowd. And that's when I knew in my heart instinctually that maybe I should get out of standup comedy. <laughs>
1: Here we go, in three, two... We ain't one at a
2: time in here! We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Cats and see me! Infections caused by jacuzzi water! I'm
0: not comfortable with the tone this is
2: taking. Okay, here we go! Is there anything else I should know? You're on! What? How <laughs> about the air?
0: And my guest today, I'm very, very, very excited about. Uh, Had a lot of people here so far, but this guy is the epitome of comedy when it comes to everything stand-up. And I've known this guy for a long time. Um, He's been a big part of my life. His uh, comedy clubs have been a big part of my life. Um, He has something in common with JFK, except... uh, his career started in 1963, and JFK's ended in 1963.
3: <laughs> well, you know, I've got to admit, I've never thought of it that way before.
0: There you go, Thank celebrating you, his, uh, 50, 50 years in comedy. And let me just tell you a little bit about him before I get started. Bud Friedman is a guy who started the improvisation in February of 1963, and it's been going strong ever since. He has built this business into something that I never thought it would be. Um, he was in a situation where he uh, created a show called Evening at the Improv, which I believe has over 400 episodes in syndication, which is unprecedented. And literally, he started uh, everybody from Jay Leno to Bette Midler to Robin Williams, Sandler, Jim Carrey. The list goes on and on. He was also a manager, which we're going to talk about as well in terms of Jay Leno and Bette Midler. And he's produced a number of different television shows, and he's also been featuring a lot of movies uh, as well. So please, if you will, welcome, very excited guest today, Bud Friedman. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Uh, Well, I I, got to say,
3: listening to that cold opening, and boy, it was cold. (laughs) But I, you know, I know I'm older than you are, but I didn't realize how much older. And this is serious. I mean, T, you mentioned things like you went through your father's file cabinet. And by the way, my father died when I was six, but he didn't leave me a file cabinet. <laughs> uh, and um, and you found a Bob Newhart album and a Supreme album. I said, wait a minute. You know, if I, if, if I went through the albums when my father died, if he had had albums, but we were very poor, uh, I would have found... Uh, Maybe an early Bing Crosby, uh, certainly a, a Rudy Valley, um, but no Newhart, no comedy, no no black people, I can assure you. Uh, no <laughs> comedy at all. No, there was no comedy when I was born. Uh, <laughs> 1932 in the middle of the depression? No, nah, no. Nah. so but it's amazing, though, that uh, uh, you found this uh, to be of interest to you at that age. And, uh, you know, certainly Newhart, you know, what an example. You know, it's just uh, the only problem is that uh, Bob, even though he stutters as his routine, makes it look easy. And, and you got fooled. It's uh, the first time I took my wife, uh, whom we married now 32 years, to the improv. One of the reasons I loved her besides her natural attributes, that you're aware of, was the fact that she was not in the business. And, and your was, wife is an
0: amazing yeah, woman. Yeah, she's fantastic. And she's made me every time I, today, I Every yeah. time I meet you both together, yeah. I just say to myself, my <laughs> God, that was not a lateral move for you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway,
3: certainly it was a step down for her, but we won't go into that We don't as long as she doesn't realize it. But anyway, we're sitting at the club our first date, and she sees this guy perform. And when he finished, she says, you know, I think I could do that. And I said, oh, no, don't tell me she wants to become a comedian of all things. And the next night, we went back to the club because the price was right. Same guy goes <laughs> on. And when he finishes, Alex says, no, I don't think I could do that. And it was Robin. But he made it look so easy, and he looked like he was having so much fun. She thought, maybe I could do that.
0: And when was this? What year was this? When this you was met? 1980.
3: Yep. 1980, we met. yeah. And, uh, but, uh, you know, Robin was, you know, virtually unknown at the time. And... Uh, and I, thank God, what you said, I don't think I could do that. Put the iron back in my blood, as it were, and <laughs> we got married shortly
0: thereafter. Oh, that's awesome. But, uh, and so I got a lot of questions to ask okay. you. Okay. So many questions to ask you. It's like there has to be a moment when you're doing something else, when you're working at a job, a shitty job or something that you didn't want to do. You're living in like a studio apartment or something or and you're in New York and you're wondering, like, what am I going to do with my life? And all of a sudden something happens and you realize, I, I want to open up a-, a club on 44th and Ninth. So tell me, take me like maybe a month before when you had no idea about... What Open, you were going to do, the and then what what happened? What made you decide that you wanted that idea came to you? And what kind of existence were you living in? Were you okay. were you poor? Or were you like what was happening? I was uh, living in Boston. Wow, and I was in
3: advertising. I was doing okay, and I was just about thirty, and uh, I've been su- supporting my widowed mother with the help of my sister, and uh, and I. And, and oh, and her brother died and left her five thousand dollars, which was a considerable amount of money in those days.
0: Five thousand back then is like what fifty thousand yeah, now, at least.
3: Yeah, and uh, and I saved some money. I said, I'm going to go back to New York. I'm going to take a year off, and I'm going to produce a show on Broadway because that's why I wanted to be an actor, but I didn't have the guts to do that. So I'll become a producer on Broadway. And you never
0: done that before? No,
3: no, I didn't know anyone in the theater.
0: <laughs> I had No money, no contacts, and no money, no script, nothing. But there. you said I'm going to yeah, produce a produce Broadway show.
3: show. So I was dating this uh, young lady who was in uh, Fiorello, and uh, I have to go back even further because before I went away, before I went into the army, I uh, I was going to this place in the village called the Village Green, and I saw Ethel Merman perform there. I saw Bobby Moss perform there. Just a piano player. I thought, no, oh, then 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 oh, I'm dating this gal, you know, sixty two.
0: Now when you say dating Dating. Dating. What was dating back then? Was it mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Well, she was were you allowed to sleep with girls back then? Yes,
3: yes. And bit would Yes, yes. bit of a would bit of a go out of the show with the show. of the guys <laughs> in the show, girls in the show, and they say, "Hey, remember in Chicago, we go to Harry's a when we of doing the trial. Get up and sing after the show. and Boston, a get up, and there was another place and little get up. And I bit of a little bit of a little bit I a "Open up a place, a coffee house with a in the theater district, little the kids a come the the shows and get up and sing." And it took me about six months to find the location because I had to be walking, you know, walking uh, distance from the theaters. And I found 44th between 8th and 9th. I found this location. The rent was $250 a month. And uh, I did most of the work myself. I had some friends come in and help me. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing.
0: Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Now, was $250 a month a lot back then? For me, it was. You know, and and was, it there a, it was there a liquor license? No, th-
3: no, yeah, no liquor. So 10, was,
0: uh, I, and, I, I, and, and so an apartment in New York at, I'm not busting uh, your balls yeah, here. No, I'm just trying to get the lay of land here. So fifty years ago, an apartment in New York, yeah. you know, a studio or one bedroom, oh. how much was it a month? A hundred. hundred Okay, so this was like two and a half. Time. Yeah, I think we had a
3: at one point after we got married, uh we had an apartment for about two hundred dollars, you know, which is pretty pretty good apartment.
0: And you're referring to your uh X-wise. first wife, uh silver, silver right.
3: Yeah. And uh any case, uh, it was a, a smash hit. We had 74 seats.
0: Now, time out here, so let's take me to the grand yeah, opening.
3: The grand opening, I cannot recall.
0: Not one performer on there. Oh, no, no. Not we one performer you waitresses. can't recall?
3: We had, uh, opening night, no. But no. we had singing waitresses, uh, in case somebody didn't show up. And um, probably one of the first performers to perform was either Michelle Lee... Or Bobby Moss. Wow! uh, Now my ex-wife was in How to Succeed in Business, uh, which saw those two people, and you know she brought a lot of people in from the shows, and uh, it was an artistic success. But you know we didn't even have a cover charge or a minimum, and uh, we only had food. And finally, after a year, I got a wine and beer license. And as fate would have it, a comedian walked in one night by the name of Dave Astor. Did you know Dave? No, I did not. Dave was sort of a comics comic who was working The Blue Angel. You've heard of The Blue Angel? Yeah. A very, for those of you who don't know, a very, very prestigious bot on the east side where everybody from Nichols and May to Harry Belafonte played.
0: So at the the time in 1963 in New York, how many places featured a stand-up comedian? None. None. Not None. even a cabaret or anything.
3: No, no. Uh, the comics, for the most part, ninety-eight percent of the time, at the Playboy Club, which was the play, or the living room, or uh, what was the other place uh, besides Blue Angel, it was either a Bob Newhart,
0: or the comic was an opening act for a singer. So the in the village was it the. Cafe Agogo or the, yeah. didn't they feature sometimes some cabaret performers like Lenny Bruce or people like they that? They had, Le- Cafe Agogo had Lenny Bruce, yeah. So they did feature, certain places featured oh, yeah. them, but, but just but just as a but one stars. night. Yeah, like yeah.
3: you know, like I saw Lenny Bruce at the Village Vanguard before I, long before I opened the improv. That's another story, but they're very influential on me. But um, in any case, Dave Astor also mentored uh, Richard Pryor, whom he met at the uh, 44th Street Club. And uh, Dave, uh, all the comics went to see him at the uh, at the Blue Angel, and he would bring them over to the improv after that, and they'd all get up and perform. And that's how I became a comedic genius. And uh, finally, after about 12 years, I started to make some money, and uh, I went to Europe for my first vacation, came back. I had hired this young man to run the club while I was away, because everyone says, you leave the club, it'll fall apart, bud. And I came back, and it was still there. And so I made a deal with this young man to run the club. We sold him a little piece of it, and we moved out here, opened the club here.
0: And that young man was? Chris Albrecht. Chris Albrecht. Yes. And for those of you who don't know, Chris Albrecht is the, uh, uh, was the president of HBO made for HBO, what many, many years, made it what it is today, and also now is the president of Stars and one of the most unbelievably uh, incredible... Um, executives in television history true very true and i discovered him and he started as your doorman uh he was uh, sort of like
3: that uh, you know but uh in any case chris did a great job uh and uh, the first year i was living out in california business increased 15 percent in new york so obviously they didn't need me and uh i loved it out here my ex-wife didn't and uh
0: When did it start? When did the club start being almost exclusively stand up comedians? What year? Uh, I would say 79, somewhere around there. Got it. And so, in in that time, uh, right before the comedy boom, what are some of your greatest memories in the 70s of the stand ups who were coming in and were experiencing an audience that really wasn't? Had never known comedy, and, oh. and you're basically for the first time bringing in a kind of entertainment that hadn't been seen in New York in a sh- like a showcase of oh, comedians in New York. Uh, so, who were some of the people that that that, that you saw that uh, really made an impact on you? I know you said Lenny Bruce earlier on in your career, but at your club or at you the were, club? Well,
3: Rodney Dangerfield was well. Richard Pryor first. Richard Pryor was uh, brilliant, uh, and uh, he and Ron Carey. Ron Carey uh, was uh, an actor also. He was on Bonnie Miller. Yeah. And he did lot, all of Mel Brooks' movies. And he was one of the funniest people in the world. And he and Richard would act out a scene, and David Astor, with the one little microphone we have, would sit in a corner and tell a story, and they would act it out. And it was sheer brilliance. surely Sheer brilliance, I should say. And. Um, That was uh, memorable, memorable nights. And Ron Carey, who was very Catholic, did a lot of Catholic material, which was pretty, you know, trend-setting in those days. And uh, he would go on uh, four shows, two on Friday, two on Saturday. He saw every show. Which is unheard of for us. We didn't know what was going on.
0: And back then it was all word of mouth, obviously, because oh, there was no Internet, nothing. It's no just, internet. There's no flyers being passed out. People just said, hey, we've got to see this guy.
3: Barry, we got more publicity on that club than you can imagine without a press agent because people would tell people. The owner of P.J. Clark's used to come in all the time. He brought in Bill Slocum, who wrote for the Journal American, one of the papers we used to have, more than one paper in New York. Uh, Another gal did uh, some uh, typing for a guy from the World Telegram. Instead of paying me, she says, come and hear me sing. He wrote about the club. But Um, you only
0: have 74 legal seats.
1: Well, then
3: we added. We kept expanding. Uh, We took over one store and then another store. But
0: it was never a monstrous place.
3: Well, we ended up, by the time I left, we had a bar that would hold about 30 people. And we had...
0: um, but nobody could see seats. the show in the bar. No, but
3: we had 210 seats.
0: But like on a Saturday night, you know, when people, the word of the mouth is, yeah. this is it the place to go? Like, right. wh- how how oh, did people get in? Oh, the was around the block. We did three shows, sometimes four on a Saturday
3: night, so it was great. I loved it. You know, you can come in. You know,
0: <laughs> you stay there. You know. And so, and so, when you when you expanded, I, I want to first talk about, if you don't mind, no, it might be a sensitive su- subject, but. She was a big part of my life when I first started in New York in the eighties was your ex wife Silver. Oh. And so after you moved out to LA and you guys, uh stopped being together, she uh ran the club there in New York for right. in the eighties and part of that time. And uh a very a completely different entity than you. Like a like a, you were the kind of guy who was like always like um You were the, like, the everything is going to be okay guy. You were the guy who was talent relations, everything about you. You had the joke. You had a little bit of performer in you. You were very, very uh, warm and friendly. And Silver had that thing where she always wore this hat, like it was like a rain hat or something like that in the club. And she always had this thing where if you tried out for the club, she was sitting on the end place and you would try out for the club and you would walk by and you weren't supposed to talk to her you weren't supposed to touch her you weren't supposed to say anything to you and if you walked by and she grabbed you and she brought you toward and said nice job that meant you were probably going to be a regular she did have that johnny carson uh (laughs) it was very theatrical (laughs) really i find that hard to believe (laughs) and so did you come to la after you uh, got divorced, or did you come to L.A. before you got divorced? No, no,
3: before. We moved out in 75, 74 actually, opened the club in 75.
0: and we, The club on Melrose? On Melrose. Um, uh, all right, so you come here, and when does all the shit hit the fan and you stop be- being a couple anymore? What year was that? I would say 77,
3: and 78, uh, 77, and 78 she moved back to New York. And uh, Chris lasted a year with her, and then she bought him out, and uh, he came out here, and I gave him a job as a manager, bartender for a while, and then he got a job at uh, as an agent, at ICM, and then he got uh, Showtime. I mean uh, HBO.
0: And so, when you opened the comedy club here in the seventies, are you said so? There were oh, no was, other comedy. Yes, the Comedy, comedy Store. The Comedy Store about was about a year. Here. Got it. When I got out here, and when you came out and you opened the Improv. Tell me the reaction you had from the uh, comedy store and uh, the uh, flamboyant owner of the comedy store. And, well, uh, talk a little about her and your relationship I have to with her that and a uh, bit. Mitzi Shore yes, Mitzi. And, and and tell me about because normally when somebody comes in, like when I started doing comedy clubs in Boston and running them, if I opened the comedy club anywhere near another comedy club, they would always try to blackball me. Tell the comic, say, hey, if you work there, you're not going to work there. Yeah. And so I want to talk about the beginnings, and then we're going to talk about that strike that happened, which a lot of okay. comedians don't know about. But there was a strike in Los Angeles with comedians. But tell me, you come in, was Mitzi happy? Or was she unhappy? Mitzi
3: was furious. She think stole she she claims I stole her idea. Uh, and the, the founding of the comedy store was by her ex husband Sammy Shore, and a guy named Rudy DeLuca. Do you know Rudy? No. Rudy used to write for Ron Carey. And he used to hang around the improv. And then he wrote for Sammy Shore. Now he writes, co-writes with Mel Brooks. He's upgraded a little. But he called me and said, we're thinking of opening a club out here, uh, Sammy and I. Like the improv, would you be upset? I said, no, I never thought I'd move out here. So I said, fine. So the improv is based, I mean, the comedy store is based upon the improv. And when I used to come out to visit, Mitzi treated me very nicely. The minute she heard I was opening, uh, persona non
0: grata. And she so said So did you ever go to the club after you opened and she said you're not allowed here? Get no, out. No, I never went over there. So you've never been to the comedy store in thir- forty years. I don't think so. Interesting.
3: I was maybe once. Did she ever sorry. come to the improv? Oh no.
0: Oh no. No. no, 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 no. Alright, so so tell me the first comedians you remember that sort of crossed the lines. Oh,
3: I can tell you exactly. She would say, if you work for me, you cannot work at the improv, Jay Leno says. Now, Jay, uh, as you said earlier, I managed him in New York, and Jay came out here about a well, just about the time the comedy store opened, and he was working there, as was Jimmy Walker and Freddie Prince, all of whom started with me in New York, oh. and uh, Freddie was a big, big star at the time, so was Jimmy. They both had their own sitcoms. Series. And Jay was not, um, but he was still a comics comic. And Jay said, well, uh, if you won't let me work both places, I've got to go to the improv. So, but, you know, Bud used to manage me, and I started there. Well, you can work both places. So she said you can work both places. So and who was the next person? And Freddie Prince, she didn't even bother to say anything to him. And uh, and Jimmy Walker was a pussy and stayed there. I don't know. Why. He never came to the improv much at all which was really no loss, but that's another story. But uh, but uh, Charlie Fleischer, whom I had nothing to do with now, in New York. Now, for US. those of you who
0: don't know, no. Charlie Fleischer is famous for something. He was the voice of Roger, Roger Rabbit. Rabbit right. uh, and Char- Charles Fleischer is probably, probably one of the most brilliant comedians that probably never... Got to the point where people thought he should go, but he was an incredible improvisational genius of the level. Yeah. I'm sure Robin Williams, if he were sitting here, would say Charles Fleischer is the level of improvisational genius yeah. on stage that I am.
3: Yeah, uh, very close. But uh, but anyway, Charlie, who was completely unknown, hadn't done you know Roger Rabbit at the time, said, "Well, I'm going to work there too," and she backed down on him also. And but for the most part, you know, she had her. Click, and I had mine, and uh, and I didn't care except that, you know, in New York I had a great relationship with Rick Newman of the, of the uh, uh, Catch Catch your Rising, Rising Star. Star, and we would call up, who's we're sitting around? I need somebody, and vice versa, and we were fine with people working both clubs, and it was good for the comics to so develop faster.
0: That's what happened when I owned my club, uh, the Boston Comedy Club on West Third Street. Oftentimes you'd call the other clubs if your sh- a com- comedian didn't show up or you'd get a call from your club yeah. from the comedy cell or listen, who do you have? Our guy didn't show up. Is a very common practice. Even if they hated you, they would call you and, and they would do that. So tell me, uh, so the comedians that were working for you... Were they allowed to work? Like, let's say there was a big comic that was working for you that hadn't worked her place. Who was the first big comic that was working for you and 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 wasn't working at the comedy store? Who then went over to the comedy store and she allowed to work there?
3: Oh, I don't. I really don't know. And you didn't and care. I didn't care. I
0: don't care. I, never, I didn't keep track of that. And so uh, then, why did the strike happen? And what what exact what was the year of the strike? Why did the strike happen? Yes,
3: the strike happened in seventy you, nine. What's
0: your part? What's her part?
3: The strike, it was all her fault.
0: (laughs) Um, Is anything your fault?
3: Oh, yeah. Okay. What happened was Mitzi had the original club, uh, 200 seats or something, and then she took over what was Ciro's, and she's got 400 seats there. And she put in Rodney Dangerfield, nothing, business-wise. Then she put in Jackie Mason, nothing. Then one night she puts in unknown David Letterman, Jay Leno, and... I forgot the third guy, sold out, and she started putting her best acts from the comedy store in the big room, and they did great business. She
0: wasn't paying them. What were a you, penny? What were you paying your acts nothing. at the improv? You nothing. weren't paying them nothing. nothing, anything. Nothing. And so no one was paying any comedians
3: no, anything. We paid at the time. Uh, cab fare in New
0: York, but that's but all. But in L.A., nobody paid anything. No,
2: no,
3: and uh, and the comics got a little upset with her. Based upon all the money she's making in the big room with, you know, the unknown acts or virtually unknown acts. She paid Rodney to come in for that. Yes, and she paid Jackie Mason, but she wouldn't pay these guys. And they said, fuck this. And they
0: went on strike. What year was that, do you think? 79. 79. So, 79. so the strike had nothing to do with the improv.
3: No. Except- I thought they went
0: on strike because they wanted money from you, too. Oh, they wanted money from me, too.
3: However, before they could get to me. Somebody else got to me and burned down the showroom. It's rumored that it was somebody in Mitzi's employ. We've never been able to prove it, nor can I say it for a fact.
0: So, so she'd sue me. But uh, I thought you burned it down for the insurance money. No, okay. no.
3: You're looking at the, the the one Jew that didn't make a penny on the fire. Maybe it was Bob
0: Fisher that burned it <laughs> yeah,
3: down. Yeah, that could be. He's a vicious little son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, well, maybe Mike Lacey, that son of a bitch. And for those of you who don't know, either these gentlemen, they're both princes. They're the only club owners I like.
0: Michael Lacey is the, uh, yeah, runs Comedy the Magic. Comedy and Magic club, club in Hermosa Beach, where actually Jay Leno, every Sunday night, does a show every Sunday night. I'm not here to promote material. other clubs. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Fucking believable! I have to give the audience some information.
3: You can say a club.
0: You're not the only horse in town, you know.
3: I understand that, but I'm the only horse on the show with you right now. <laughs> remember that, and I'm all saddled up, ready to go. Did so you have this much case, fun with Mark Maron? Oh no. no, no. <laughs> Who not does he know? Happened. You shit on him like this? <laughs> <laughs> no, go on. sorry. So anyway, so anyway, I'm out of business. Basically, I have this little dining room in front, and do you remember Dottie Archibald? <laughs> No. Dottie was a comedian and a friend of ours, and her husband was one of these super guys, who, uh, he was uh, an engineer or something, but he could do electrical, he could do plumbing, he could do carpentry. He put me back at business in one and a half days. He ran a line from the alley through the debris to the front room. We converted the little dining room into a showroom with 74 seats, the same amount wow. I had in New York. And we were like that for about eight months because the insurance was held by the landlord and he wouldn't start building or couldn't start building until he, w- he got out worked everything out with the insurance company so we were you know, we were down for a long time it obviously depleted my little bank account plus I just went through a divorce I lost the the I, in the divorce uh, silver got the New York Club and I kept the LA Club and the New York club was worth five times what the L.A. Club was worth, even before the fire.
0: Until five years later after. Yeah, well,
3: now, you know. But um, so, uh, you know, and my kids had gone, you know, back to New York with their mother. So I was really depressed. I was down. And uh, anyway, um, we finally got it opened. And uh, I'll tell you who went on the first night. On that night, that was Robin Williams, who did a benefit for me. And the next night, Andy Kaufman did a benefit for me. And then I had some money in the bank and I was able to continue and go on. But I still wasn't doing, you know, that well. And it was a big hole to get out of. And uh, it wasn't until 81 that we got evening at the Improv and that changed everything.
0: After the strike, uh, what were the comedy clubs paying the comedians?
3: Oh, we're paying them something like 15 to
0: $40 a set. And what's the most money... Now that you know of that, any L.A. comedy club pays an artist for a set. Well, for sets, I don't know. You know, it's minimal. Is it still like you know However, fifty dollars on a weekend or twenty five? Yeah, but well, we own? do we do hire. Guys. No, I know, I know that, but I'm just yeah. talking about the regular showcase sets. It's yeah, still very low. Yeah, yeah, got it.
3: I mean, add it up though. You're doing fifteen to twenty comics a night. You know, twenty dollars a set. It, and not only that, it's you know that. They're free uh, to try out material, to break in material, and, of course, to audition for ex-producers and so forth. There was um, a book written. There is a book uh, written by a guy named John DeBellis, who's a New York comic. Did you know, John? No. He wrote for Saturday Night Live. He wrote for Carson. And he wrote a book called... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, John, you're going to kill me. Uh, it just came out, and it's uh, The Stand-Up Guys. And it's his recollection of growing up in New York as a comic nineteen eighties. Late mid mid eighties into the nineties. And he was friends with best friends with Larry David, Jerry Seinfeld, Larry Miller, all of those people from that era who were there and some great stories, but he said when the when the strike hit New York also and they started paying, he says it changed the whole atmosphere of the club and comedians lost their, their, uh, their clickness, clickiness with each other and, and friendliness, they became competitive for the spots and they felt they couldn't try out material the way they did before and it really hurt the camaraderie of, of the comedians and, and the, I think the efforts of the comic themselves. I think by now, hopefully the money is not an issue when they go up and they think about what they're trying to do and progress their career.
0: Now, before we get into Evening at the Improv, I just want to ask you about management, because obviously ah. uh, because obviously, I uh, uh, am a manager, or else uh, what you would say a so-called manager. Mm. Um, and why did you decide you wanted to get into the management, and then what happened that made you decide, i got to get the fuck out of management?
3: Well, uh, as you know... I am founder and president of Managers Anonymous so that <laughs> you get the urge to manage somebody and you folks at home, please take this number down. <laughs> Just call me. I'll come over with a drink, a shot of heroin, a cup of coffee, whatever it takes to make you change your mind because you don't want to do this. I, um, I, my first client, uh, I guess, was uh, Bette Midler.
0: Was Bette Midler, yeah.
3: And uh, she's a tough babe but talented as can be. And in uh, one year's time, I, I got her five Tonight Shows, five David Frost shows. And by the way, that he was the first one to put her on the air. Five Merg Griffin shows, a gig at Paul's Mall in Boston, and a gig at Mr. Kelly's in Chicago all in one year. So it was pretty good. We've remained friends. But, you know, being a manager is, as you know, you, know, you have to be a father, a brother, an uncle, uh, and in some cases, a lover. And uh, of the clients. And I had a family. I have a family. You know, I I was talking to uh, a comic about a year ago at the Improv. Uh, John Mendoza. Do you know John Mendoza? Yes, of course. Very funny guy. And I, John, Jay's came, name came up. And I said, well, you know, I used to manage Jay. You manage Jay? I said, yeah, I also manage. Bet- you manage Jay and Betty? He's about to hoist me up onto a pedestal. And I said, and I also manage Lenny Schultz. Of course, and he almost uh, fell down laughing. Lenny, Lenny Schultz, Schultz was the Chicken Man, right? The chicken the, Man, who was literally by so the way, a uh,
0: very crazy New York comedian. Somebody also who Robin Williams has been on, gone on record as saying, one of the few guys that he was ever feeling like I don't want to follow this guy. Yeah,
3: that's because he threw up on the stage or would take a pardon me a bowel movement on the stage, but he was he couldn't come close to Charlie and and. Uh, well, that was all rehearsed. It was, you know, except when he threw up, and he Lenny was six uh, one.
0: So he rehearsed taking a dump on the stage.
3: One hundred and eighty-five pounds, and he was a phys ed teacher, yeah. and the improv in New York. The stage was right by the fire exit, and I am for you folks at home 5'8", and a portly one eighty. No, I'm down to one seventy five actually, and um, a bit more elderly than Lenny was. This goes back uh, thirty. God, 40 years, I guess. And he threw up. And he says, what do you want me to do, ladies and gentlemen? Do you want me to shit on the stage or throw up? And being a sophisticated audience, they said, throw up. So he f- physically threw up on the stage purposely. I went out and I grabbed
0: him and I picked him up off the floor and
3: threw him out the door. Yeah. <laughs> like the story of the mother picking up the car. And it's true. <laughs> on, on, on the
0: stage at the old improv at 44th and 9th, the exit door, the fire exit was right there, stage right, as you're looking out at the crowd. There was that exit door, and, and he, you just threw him out that door. I threw him out, <laughs> which was a great prop, by the way, for a lot
3: of comics. Men on the street type of thing. Of course, one comic went out to talk to some man on the street and came back with his hands up in the air. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so, so management. Um,
0: but Jay Leno, you know, always... Um, I mean, Jay Leno, always one of the nicest guys in the world, uh, not a highly demanding guy. Uh, you couldn't compare him to the oh, personality no. of Bette Midler. No, no. So, uh, uh, obviously, he was the comedian you were working with, and he was the nicest guy. And, and oh, so, but uh, Barry, what happened was,
3: uh, it's a long story, but I I managed Bette for the year, they gave it up, and then... This guy who used to head up the entertainment for the Playboy Clubs is now working with the big manager. And he said, let's go. You come to business with us. You'll find the guys. I'll get them to work. And when we need it, Mr. Big, I forgot his name, the big manager, will come along and move along. I said, okay. So Murray Becker was his name. Did you know Murray?
0: No, I and didn't. So Murray I left. I feel bad. This is like the fourth time I've said so, no, I don't know somebody. Well, In every podcast, <laughs> I always seem to know people. and I have known nobody. Because I'm, cause Cause I'm making up the names.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I believe So you.
0: Murray leaves Mr. Big. See, I know Mr. Big's name. I
3: forgot that. And now I'm stuck with Mr. Big and with Jay. And I said, I don't want to match. I'm Jay. Jay's, first of all, living out here now. And I'm still in New York. And it took me about six months to convince Mr. Big to give him his release. So we gave him his release and uh, fortunately ended up with Helen Kushnick. Which is another story, Helen and and Jerry Kushnick,
0: who uh, managed Jay for uh, a long time. But that's another story in (laughs) itself. So tell me how Evening at the Improv came about. Because this is, uh, prior to this, if I'm not mistaken, there was never any television show featuring completely and 100% all stand-up comedians. Yes, you had hosts that were from the entertainment business who... You sort of wrote a little monologue or they wrote a monologue for similar to Saturday right. Live. Yes. But it was an exclusive stand-up comedy show that I don't <laughs> believe had ever been seen on television in the history of television. Absolutely not. So how did you get that going and what was the impetus for that? Because you know, as a, here you are, you're starting in New York, you have nothing, you're trying to do the Broadway thing, you don't know anything about it, you're doing the comedy thing, you don't know anything about it, you take the last dollars out of your pocket... And now you're out here, you've just gone through a divorce, and a lot of people don't realize this. When you go through a divorce, and a lot of people do realize this, you know, perception isn't always reality. So you have a club in L.A., you might have a nice car, you might have a house out here, but in reality, and after your club burns down, you don't really have anything. There's no cushion, there's no reserves, there's no nothing, but people look at you like you're a millionaire, but you're not. And so here you are, and at that time in the 70s, when times were a little tough before the boom, right where the boom was about to happen, I attribute to Evening at the Impro. Oh, absolutely. So tell me how it
3: happened. Well, by the way, I have to preface this by saying in 1980, right after we got the club reopened. As a matter of fact, two days after they opened the club again, I met Alex. A mutual friend introduced us, and, and Alex we being your wife, my wife, and I was broke, as you said, and uh, and, and you can't spoke.
0: meet a woman of that caliber when you're broke. I know, but I did. It's like going up to a bank teller <laughs> is beautiful and saying, "Will you go out with me?" And she looks on the computer. Uh, I don't think so, Mr. Friedman.
3: <laughs> well, she didn't have to look at my computer, but she um, she you know loved me, and we got married within a year, but. Uh, the minute we got married, things happened. The thing we got—the minute I met her, actually—things started to happen. And because there's always a great woman behind, behind a, a downtrodden, right? And within guy who's going nowhere. Within three months, I think, uh, you know, people were coming all the time saying we should do a TV show from here. I said, great idea. Come back with some money, response. I never saw them again. Finally, one guy came back, Larry O'Daly. This man um, got the financing for the show from Canada. So it was a Canadian tax deal. You've never, ever heard of anything being Canadian tax outside of Canada. And he said, well, you can't re- reproduce the improv somewhere else. It's got to be from here, but we'll use a Canadian producer, director, and as many Canadian comics as we can find. And that's why Lorne Green hosted the show, because he was Canadian. Rich Little. Every Canadian we could find... We would put on
0: the show, and we... we um, so the first order, first when it was sold in... So you did a pilot first of the show. I did a pilot. Who was on the pilot? Do you remember? Billy Crystal was the host. Billy Crystal and was the Billy host, Crystal, and, uh, and who else?
3: can't remember now. I remember Billy.
0: That's but, okay. That's yeah. okay. So so what happens, for those of you who don't know, uh, when you're trying to sell a syndicated show, you shoot a pilot, and then you take it to a convention uh, normally called NAPTI, and you show it to a bunch of buyers, and hopefully there's one segment that clears it and gets it and really understands it, and then goes out and buys it, and then goes out to sell it and clear it in the whole marketplace. So just to give you an understanding of syndication, I believe there's 212 markets in the United States. When I say markets... That's like a market like Springfield, Massachusetts or um, Boston, Massachusetts or New York uh, or Los Angeles or Anaheim or San Diego. Their markets, some of them go and they mix in with each other. They crisscross like obviously Newark, New Jersey might get some of the airwaves of New York or something, but these are separate markets. So when you sell a show like Evening at the Improv, the fascinating thing that people don't realize is that these buyers get these shows for an amount of money that's literally like pennies on the dollar. But if you can clear the show in 95% of the market, they can put it on at any time. Like when you're in your local market, let's say, between 7 and 8 o'clock, a lot of times you'll get Seinfeld reruns. It's 7 to 7.30 and 7.38. That's a syndicated time slot. When you're watching Arsenio this fall on television, those are time slots that are cleared through those local stations. So what happens is, these people put up a budget for evening at the improv. Normally, what you do in syndication for a run, you shoot. If it's a strip show, which it was, which you were, I believe you were airing every night of the week in certain markets, yeah. correct? Yeah. So what happens is you shoot. Be, normally around 165 shows a year, and, and do it together like that. So Bud, when he was shooting them, might shoot two, might, might in one week, he might shoot 14 shows. No, don't forget they were our shows. I know, but you shot two shows in one yeah, night. Yeah, right, yeah. So, and so what happens is when you sell them to these markets, this is the fascinating thing, they're buying it for the year, okay? So you can go to a market, and you could literally sell Evening at the improv for Say here uh we'll give you evening at the improv for the year for five thousand dollars a week, but just write us a check for the uh year right now, and we'll give it to you. You can air it as much as you want, so you think to yourself, five thousand dollars these people could air as many as they want and they can for like a foul these guys are gonna make a killing. But then when you add it up and you get the check and it's like $250,000 for that one market, then you go to like Charlotte, North Carolina, and they say, we'll only give you 1200 a week. And you're like, ah, 1200 a week. Well, can you give us the amount of money all in advance? And then they give you that money in, a, in advance. And then it adds up and then you put it all together and it's an enormous amount of money in syndication but it doesn't look like it when you're selling it to the different markets because it seems like they're getting it for a steal. And so these people shot it. They did it. They financed it because they knew that if they could get the right people selling the show, there was no way they couldn't make a profit on it, which is what happened and which is why you probably shot close to 400 of these things. Yes, that's part of it.
3: Except that after the second year, the Canadian tax laws changed and we lost our financing. And, uh, so we went off the air and, uh, then we sold the 52 shows we had to a and E, a a fledgling network, as we like to call it. And, uh, for those of you who don't remember, there was, uh, the big star until I came along on A&E was Adolf Hitler. <laughs> so they were always <laughs> running these world, that, he's a guy from World War Two, guys, in case you know. Uh, they Which were is where running. you won
0: your Purple Heart, right? No. Korea. <laughs> they
3: were always running these World War II things. And then they started running A&E, started running Evening at the Improv eight times a day. They had no programming. And it became a big hit on A&E. So A&E financed 13 new shows. Next year they financed 26 new shows. Then they financed 52 shows. And we became a big hit on A&E. And what the tv shows did for the improv is incalculable
0: i mean it just allowed us to franchise
3: which was another subject that uh,
0: yeah so so the comedy boom happened and and when i was in massachusetts i was running a comedy club called play it again sam's and when these things started airing um there were like lines around the block at my club i mean it was just incredible and it, it was like nothing i'd ever seen before and i i attribute it all to you know this this thing, this glut of comedy that was on television. People just wanted to go out and see live comedy, and and the people on the shows were relatively unknown people. Granted, oh, you yeah. had special guests certain times, but yeah, most of the times they were. And just to let you know how I, how much this show meant to me, I remember you had a guy who was booking the show, a crazy young guy named was it Eric Eric Fagan. Eric Fagan, yeah, and. I decided as a young comedy club entrepreneur, like how am I going to get cred, how am I going to do something for the comics, how can I make something happen with Evening at the Improv when I don't really have any money to do anything. So what I did was I called Eric Fagan, and I said, look, I'm going to fly you to New York for your all expense paid weekend, I'm going to pay for your flight, I'm going to pay for your hotel, I'm going to pay for your taxis, I'm going to pay for your food. All you have to do is come to two shows Friday and three shows Saturday and see 50 comedians that I want to show you. And he agreed to it. And he came down and I paid for all of that. I got all the comedians to agree to work similarly to how the improv did before for free in exchange for what I had done to fly and put this guy up. And 17 comedians got Evening at the Improv from that showcase. Oh. And I'll never forget that. And, again, it was just taking a chance and taking a risk, but I wanted to do something that would sort of move the needle. And so, so, which is what you've done so many times in your life. As compared to...
3: I'm blanking out on his name, probably for a good reason, who owned a clammy club called Yuck Yucks in Toronto. Mark Breslin. Mark Breslin, who was a, a, a little prick, I mean. and Does he know way. you talk badly about oh, him? Oh, I'm sure he does. Do I've you know that so. he talks badly about you? I'm sure he does. <laughs> okay.
0: What he did was um, my now producer, Mark Breslin, for those of you who don't know, and Bud doesn't want me to say this, Mark Breslin basically has like the... Almost like this exclusive like hold on Canada where he has if anybody tries to do anything in Canada, it's like they're shut down. It's like this. And he's a little guy. He looks like looks a little like Martin Short, only a miniature version of Martin Short. Um,
3: Anyway, so he owned Yuck Yucks, one club at this time in in Toronto. And my producer and director were going to go up to look at acts there. And before he put an act on, now you just heard Mr. Katz's story. Before he would put an act on, he made them sign an agreement that if they got the show, they would pay Breslin 10% of what he got on the show. And I think the pay was, uh, scale was about $128 for the show. So that means he would get $12.80 and made these people sign this deal before they put him on. I mean, he's the lowest of the low. And then he would up as a talent coordinator for Joan Rivers. So I think that was a match made in heaven. But, again, I digress. <laughs> um, but that's where I—that's how I got to um, uh, Ding Ho. Uh, while we were taping, Peter LaSalle, the producer of The Tonight Show, came in and said, I just found this guy, and I, he's going to do The Tonight Show tomorrow night. Can he work out some material tonight? So I put him on. It was Stephen Wright. I immediately booked Stephen for two evenings <laughs> at the improv. And and then Peter tells me about Ding Ho, so I call up. Um, who was booking it? The his, the comics brother Mike
0: Clark, Mike Clark, Lenny Clark's brother, Lenny Clark's brother. Lenny Clark's brother. I said, and Mike the piano Peter's, and the piano player was Martin Olson, who now produces a lot of great children's television. Oh, really? And uh, I, didn't yeah. know that.
3: Yeah. I didn't know he had a piano player. Yeah, I said, set up on a dish, and my wife are going to come up. And he says, great. So we saw about seventeen acts, no twenty probably. And before the show,
0: I go to Lenny. And by the way, for those of you who don't know, the Boston comedy scene, these guys were started in the bars, and you're talking about Boston sports, so you're, in, you're doing comedy a lot of times in bars, the Celtics are playing, the Bruins are playing, <laughs> they don't shut off the televisions, there's a bar in the room, these are hardcore acts that were very fast, very loud, and very powerful, people like and Lenny dirty. Clark and Don Gavin and DJ Hazard and Mike Donovan and and they were just incredibly the power. And then when Bob Goldthwaite came into town in the 80s and another just powerful, powerful... And Steven was an anomaly because he was different from them, but you had yeah. to pay attention to them. So when you went to the ding-ho, you were watching these artists that were like, as Bud would probably agree, no matter how... Granted, Robin, another league, prior, another league. But to find this town in the middle of nowhere, even though Boston is a big town... And the CDs kind of acts was just, it's oh, I, You know,
3: I I booked, I think we booked uh, 13 acts. But I said <laughs> to Lenny before the show, I said, I I know you're the best guy in town, but I also hear you're very dirty. And if you use fuck for a punchline, I can't, I can't this is my first show I'm producing, so I don't know whether it's going to be good or not. So please be clean. Oh, I'll be clean. <laughs> well, there wasn't a clean word in his acts, you know, and I didn't use them. But, um, and then I, I think the 14th guy that I said, you know, borderline. I think he's a little crazy. Was Bobcat, and I didn't book him, and he doesn't let me forget it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, he ended up some, he ended up doing Letterman at right? nineteen. Yeah, we had great great acts out of Boston. It was really terrific. Just to let you know, um, uh, uh,
0: my first uh, meeting with Bob Goldthwait. I was doing comedy. I was doing comedy at a club called The Comedy Connection at the Charles Playhouse, and I was doing pretty well at the time, and I was standing ready to go on, and there's a tap on my shoulder, and I look around, and I don't see anybody, and so I'm just focused again, and there's another tap on my shoulder, and I look around, I look down, and there's this baby-faced 15-year-old kid. He's wearing the Hunter's outfit like an Elmer Fudd with the red and the black you know, crisscross. At the elmer fudd jacket the pants and the boots on and he shakes my hand and he says um hi um i just want to let you know my name is bobcat i'm going on after you uh good luck i'm like thanks man uh, <laughs> good luck to you and i'm thinking to myself i'm gonna i'm gonna bury this guy <laughs> i feel horrible about it i go on i have one of the best sets i've ever had in my life I shake his hand. I say, good luck. I go to the bar thinking, God, I, you know, because I did, I was sense, I didn't think about people. I thought, God, this guy's going to die a miserable death. And he goes on. I'll never forget. And he just grabs his pants and he starts shaking. the first thing is he's like, um, uh, my brother and I, we went in the woods and we, uh, we, uh, I know the Bigfoot mating call. You want to hear it? Hey, Bigfoot, want to get lucky?
2: <laughs> that was his first line.
0: And then he said, uh, you know, I lost my job. Um, I didn't really lose my job. Just when I go there, there's this new guy doing it. And he's fucking, I mean, I've never seen, like, it's like Def Jam in the place. And it's a white-eyed. I mean, people are going crazy, like bobbing up and down. Like, a, you know, going back to Newhart. Newhart was just, like, titters and little applause. Golf well like, I mean, people were when you moving, you saw waves of people moving, and then he finished up his set and he said, Um, I lost my uh, girlfriend. I mean, I didn't really lose my girlfriend, it's just when I go there, there's this new guy doing it.
2: <laughs>
0: Fucking bedlam, and then he just says, Um, I'm looking for roommates. Good night. <laughs> Standing ovation. This fifteen-year-old kid gets a stand. White comedians do not get standing ovations <laughs> in comedy clubs. And I was at the bar, and he came over. He sat down next to me, and I remember shaking his hand and saying, "Don't worry, Bob. There'll be other sets." <laughs> <laughs> um, and I said, "Is it really true that you're uh, you're looking for a room? He said, "Yeah, I came here from Skinnyapolis with my friend, who's on stage now." I look on stage; it's Tom Kenny. the the voice of uh spongebob squarepants and he says he says listen I, i don't have a place to stay i said well i'm an ra at boston university and if you want i can sort of put you up and he said that'd be cool and i cleared out a broom closet i had a bed the old bed that i put in there i said you can stay here for a couple of days literally never left the whole semester I said, "How are you supporting yourself, Bob?" He says, "I'm passing out coupons for the Comedy Connection. They gave me from two for one coupons, and every stack they give me, they pay me to give out." I said, "Oh, that's cool, Bob." At the end of the year, when we move out, I go to clean out the closet. <laughs> I open up the closet door; it's like thousands, hundreds of thousands <laughs> of coupons all all over me. I'm like, "Ah, it's incredible!" Like I never passed that one coupon. Who ran the Comedy Connection. I remember that Paul one. Barkley and Bill Downs. Oh. So okay, let's keep going here. Uh, yeah, gotta
3: have a comic connection.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about uh, one of the things that I, I always uh, love, um, and I'm going to go a little early on this. Are the holy shit moments the moments that you know? I always say, if all your memories are drowning in the ocean, and you could only save one, so I want to mention, be a little unorthodox here. I'm going to mention some names of some people. And I'd love you to tell me just one story that just was like, this is just amazing, or something about the person that was amazing, or something that happened that, that blew you away. Good uh, or bad. Anything, good or bad. Um, uh, Jerry Seinfeld.
3: Well, the thing that sticks in my mind, besides uh, Jerry, when Jerry came out to L.A., he already pretty established pretty well established himself in New York. He was not known, basically, but he was, um, you know, there. Uh, but we, we talked briefly before we started the show about the 50th anniversary TV special. And Jerry is on it. And uh, Jerry says, and I quote, that the improv on 44th Street and 9th Avenue was like the cradle of civilization where the Euphrates and the Nile River met. It was a cradle of civilization, comedy as we know today was born there. Wow. And that, you know, I can't ask for any better words than that. No, you but can. the thing I remember was that I always tell everybody, and they don't believe it, but, you know, I was, I was very poor when I was brought up. I lost my father and all of that. Or as I said, at my 60th birthday party, I made a little speech, and Alex had given me this wonderful party at the Friars, about 200 people. And I said, you know, after everyone had performed, and I said, this is such a, a warm evening for me, and it's so hot and warming. And, you know, when I was six years old, I lost my father, and Harvey Corman yells out, How careless of you! <laughs> 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 but, um, <laughs> um, but, Jerry, um, so anyway, so very poor, and, and the first 10 years of the improv was a struggle. I knew day to day would I be there the next day.
0: And which is what which is what
3: business is all about. Well, yeah, but it was my first business too.
0: No, I know it's. And yeah,
3: but I. Uh, so anyway, I have I'm been very you know, I got reputation of being cheap, and I don't you know I don't care, but uh, I'm not anymore. You know, I finally acknowledge
0: that I am. So you were not cheap. Run out of money? Yes, absolutely. But so you acknowledge reason.
3: you've made mistakes. Uh, well, no, I don't think I made a mistake in being cheap. Jimmy Walker was well, when he was starting out at the club, he was working making two hundred and fifty dollars a week. <laughs> As an engineer for WMCA radio, and that was more money than I was making if I was making anything in those days. Anyway, one, so carried over in, even out here, when, when we were doing well again, Jerry came in with his mother. Jerry was going on, his mother came in with I don't know who else to see him, and I said, "You know she's going to have to pay." <laughs> to this day, I rue those words that came out of my mouth. <laughs>
0: And what happened?
3: She paid.
0: And did he and ever? Jerry
3: still no. Look at Jerry's still a friend, you know. So, so he still worked some there. Some people after are bigger
0: that. than I am. got it. Uh, if somebody had said that to you about your mom, what would you have done? I, oh, I'd never forget it.
3: I'd never forget
0: it. Well, so you acknowledge you do make mistakes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, Andy Kaufman.
3: Oh, Andy's be- first time was a classic. He was recommended to me by um, a guy who owned a club out in Long Island. He was back in New York. And he said, you ought to see this guy, Andy Kaufman. I said, fine. I didn't ask any questions. You know, this guy shows up. He says, how do you do, Mr. Friedman? He's doing the foreign man. He's dressed, you know. I said, where are you from, kid? You're from an island in the Caspian Sea. Well, I didn't know there was no islands in the Caspian (laughs) Sea. Did you? No. So I said, I put him on. I said, I'm going to put him on. I put him on. And this, you know, the audience is tittering. They don't know whether to laugh. I don't know whether to laugh or cry or what. Stay in the back, and, and he does an Elvis impression, dead on. But when I was in the army in Japan, these Japanese women could sing American songs without a trace of an accent, couldn't speak a word of English. They just memorized the song. Figured he did the same thing. But then he says, Well, thank you very much. I knew I'd been had, and I fell on the floor and
0: became a slave for the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Ellen DeGeneres.
3: Ellen we uh Ellen Alex and I discovered her up in uh San Francisco at the com- comedy competition. I, I think she won that year.
0: One of the only people who reminded me of Bob Newhart with the conversations of God with uh, God piece that she did.
3: Ellen is is you know a genius. I, yeah, I I don't like talk shows per se, you know, particularly daytime <laughs> talk shows not for me, but Ellen just makes me laugh. And sometimes, you know, we'll switch channels and she's on. We just watch her for a while. She's so, she's so smooth, so easy. And, and she's. we just bumped into her about two months ago. She's got a part in a restaurant, a vegetarian restaurant called Crossroads up near the improv. And uh, we went in with, uh, Alex and I went in with our uh, uh, two daughters, I think. Because our sons would never go to a vegetarian restaurant and she jumps out of her seat and gives it a big hug, and all. She's, oh, she's so you know, so sweet and so funny. But I, you know, when when she did that, those routines, uh, her 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 line that I remember, which I've quoted many times, is, um, well, I remember Alex and I were up at uh, Big Sur, and we were staying in this lodge, and there was a second floor above us with a balcony, you know, people living above us, and we're standing looking out into the field, and there's this deer, or two deer you know 100 feet away and i know there's a guy upstairs watching too and i say honey get my nine seven <laughs> she did a whole routine about that
0: and i i sort of misquoted
3: her but it worked <laughs> guy threw water
0: down on me <laughs> uh tell me about uh jonathan winters well Cause i remember i was there a night uh i i, I hate this because i want you to talk about the first time you see people on stage or doing whatever but there was a really special night, I remember, and I was lucky enough to be there where, um, you know, Jonathan went on stage at the Improv. And, um, and it was a unique night because there were a lot of people in the crowd. And then, I, if I'm not mistaken, somebody else jumped up with him. And Well, if you're saying Robin, uh, the first time
3: Robin and Jonathan ever worked together was in 1985 when we opened the San Diego Improv. And Mark Anderson, did you know Mark? Yes, who was a comic who became the first franchisee of the improvs, opened in Sandy in actually who's, Pacific Beach,
0: who since uh, passed, passed away away.
3: And uh, he knew Jonathan, his family knew Jonathan. So I did something I've never done before or since. And I called Robin and I said, listen, Jonathan Winters is coming to our opening and he'd love to have you there. And Mark Anderson called Jonathan and said, listen, Mark Anderson, Mark, uh, John, Robin Williams is coming to the Open. He'd love to have you there. And we got him there.
0: So you both honest, lied. Right? We both lied. And for it worked. the first time in your life. And they had No. And they had a great,
3: no, <laughs> but the first time like that.
0: And they both had a great time. Now, how did they work together at that club?
3: Fantastic.
0: Did I mean, they work separate sets or work no, together, together the whole time? No, all together. I think they, yeah, I don't think they went up alone. I remember yeah. that 60 Minutes piece that was one of the greatest oh. things ever. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about some other people uh, that uh, you remember for the first time. Um, let's talk about Liza Minnelli.
3: Liza. Well, Liza used to come to the club when she was 15. She started coming to the club. That's Judy Garland's daughter. Oh, you don't know Judy Garland. Anyway, uh, and Liza, Liza would um, get up and sing. Uh, uh when we had all the singers and uh, one day i'm uh, never forget the i, I can see the scene we used to have these coffee urns remember the three coffee urns yeah. you made you took the water from here and then you poured it over in the coffee yeah. over here well water would heat over here and, and i'm making the coffee and she liza and she says but, but can i sing tonight cuz my father's here and he's never heard me sing i said your father's here and i'm saying to myself vincent Minnelli is in my shit house <laughs> vincent manelli look him up kids look him up um, well tell them a musical to, comedy director in movies <laughs> and tell them what movies oh American in Paris for one okay. anyway so I go okay I'll let you I'll, I'll, I'll let you sing you know and she says oh thank you so much and then she came back with her mother and they sang <laughs> duets with Peter Allen playing
0: the piano so Judy Garland and Liza Minnelli sang and together Peter Allen. and Peter Allen at your club yes and Judy Garland and I sang together a few times at the club, I had no idea you were a, a great singer. Well, I'm not a great singer, but it's my club. <laughs> <laughs> what was your What was the song that you sang that was your you know the standard that you knew that you were the best at?
3: No, it wasn't a question of that. We were uh, Judy was singing. She was on the stage, and um, we had this terrazzo floor, very smooth, faux marble, and uh, Jack Knight. You know Jack.
1: Uh, yeah. Jack is
3: a, an actor and, and a singer and a big 6'1 stocker guy. And he's a singer, too. And we're all singing songs. And then all of a sudden, they go, uh, Judy goes into Boardwalk in Atlantic City. I'm sitting in a chair. And Jack pushes a chair like it's those things on the boardwalk, if you watch that show, Boardwalk Empire. And I'm singing on the boardwalk in Atlantic City with Judy Gohan. And a few other songs, too. I remember that one particularly, though.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Lily Tomlin. Ah,
3: Lily. Um, I met Lily through my piano player. My piano player's name was Louis St. Louis, but Louis St. Louis was from Detroit, <laughs> <laughs> and he says, a friend of mine is moving to town. She's a comedian, and she'd like to go on. I said, all right, tell her to come in Thursday at 11 o'clock at night because we didn't get started till 11.30 when you know, the theaters got out in those days. So I happened to be standing in the doorway, and this limousine pulls up. And this young lady gets out putting on little gloves, and I'm watching. In those days, a limousine meant something, you know. And uh, she says, are you Mr. Friedman? I said, yes. She says, I'm Lily Tone. I said, oh, come on in. And she went on. Of course, we loved her, and she became a regular at the club. But it took her about three months to tell me that she had walked down a block to the St. James Theater and gave the, the limo driver $5 to drive around the block while he waited for his fare from the show to break. Wow. <laughs> but I didn't find out for three months. Wow. Uh, a few more. Uh, Adam Sandler. Uh, that's Alex's discovery. Alex and I, my wife, were in New York at, the, uh, at Catch, I think. And uh, Adam went on about 1 in the morning. And when he finished, Alex says, You should go over and talk to him. And I said, Why? He doesn't have an act. It's a completely unknown, Adam Sandler. And she says, he's got something. Go talk to him. <laughs> I know where my brother's butted. And I went over and I <laughs> talked to him. And three weeks later, literally, Adam moved out here. And uh, we and his parents came. You know, and if he needs anything, give him some money. We'll give it back to you, you know, his sweetheart's parents. Jim Carey. Jim Carrey came to us courtesy of Evening at the Improv. Canada. Yeah. And, of course, Jim did impressions in those days, strictly impressions. And... Uh, My friend Bud Robinson managed him, and uh, Jim had The Tonight Show all lined up, and he went on either at the improv or at the daytime run-through, and Johnny saw it, and he died and lost the show, went back to Canada, changed his act for the better, and became the Jim Carrey we all know and love
0: now. Wow. All right, so tell me a few stories Holy shit! Moments of yours that, like, good or bad or anything in between, that if anyone were to hear them, they would never fucking believe it.
3: Well, you know, there's my whole life is like that. But uh, I, I think that um, uh, you know we've had uh, we had two of the three Beatles in the club
0: back in New York. Um, well, well, there's a famous photo that I always means something to me. Every time in New York you see it, it's the photo of John Lennon uh, oh, in New York City, and he's outside the improv. Right. Ha.
3: I have no idea how that came about. All I know is that Richard Lewis gave yeah. me the picture, and he said, this is for your birthday. And I said, thanks, you know, and uh, so I had copies made, and I put them up in all, the cl- all of our clubs, and Richard comes back, he says, everywhere I go, I see the goddamn picture, and even the restaurant that Alex and I go to, Carmine's near in our neighborhood,
0: Westwood, it's up there. It's one of the most famous pictures. It's, a, there.
3: it's not my picture. He says, I, I got it from the photographer from what, the New York Times. Was he
0: one of the Beatles that was in the club?
3: Yeah, it was, um, I think the, uh, it was, uh, uh, it was John and, um, uh, I think everyone but Ringo. Yeah, it was quite a night. Uh, but another night we had, uh, we had this great mayor in New York, Mayor Lindsay, John Lindsay, who was built like you, and uh, pear-shaped. Rich, no, long and tall, <laughs> very handsome man. All right, and, fun. And, My uh, best guest Richard ever, Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor was uh, on Merv Griffin's show, and he and he took two guys, <clears throat> unknown guys, from the club. Richard wasn't that much of a star at this point, but fairly well known. On the show, and they did improvs. and I stood in the back of the room and threw out suggestions. Right, and we rehearsed. And after the show, I felt so great. I said, Come on, I'm gonna take you to Saudi's, which I could ill afford. And about six of us went to Saudi's. And Mayor Lindsay was at the next table with two of his aides. And uh, he nodded to Richard, like he knew Richard. And so we're leaving. I said, I'm gonna invite the mayor over to the club. And they said, Oh, yeah. So I went over and introduced myself. He says, Perhaps we have time. So Saudis happens to be on 44th Street, the same side of the street as the improv. And in those days, the the, the back the, the stage wasn't on a brick wall. It was by the window. And the guys <coughs> are highest kites, just, I mean, naturally. There were actually three of them with, uh, with Richard. And they're doing improvs. And one guy, Bert Heyman, who's about 5'10", 112 pounds, is in his boxer shorts, they're doing his, uh, an improv, And we all look up and we see the mayor crossing the street. across the street by mistake, coming towards the window. And Bert is pulling up his pants like the husband's coming home. (laughs) (laughs) And the mayor came in, stayed for hours. And it was uh, one of those classic nights. It was just everyone was inspired because of the mayor. Wow. But the first time Rodney came in, Rodney had uh, gotten this great write-up. He had worked at the living room. And I said, Rodney Dangerfield. I figured some kid from Princeton. Was he Jack Roy at the time? No, he Rodney? was Rodney He D- just okay. became Rodney Dangerfield. And no one heard of him. And I read the review, and I'm expecting this kid from Princeton with a, perhaps a crew cut to walk in. And this middle-aged dr- <laughs> drunk walks in, and he goes on stage drunk, and he dies. And uh, I said, hmm, boy, I guess there's some right up here. And he comes back this night sober. As if to say, "I'll show these guys," and goes on and just wipes out the room, wipes out the room, and became my unofficial MC for
0: about two and a half years before he opened his own club. Tell me your Mount Rushmore of comedy. Oh. That's who's a good who's who's it. the that's four a... men carved or, or women carved <laughs> oh. into the mountain?
3: Well, Richard Pryor, Robin. I got to give a lot of credit to Robert Klein because I think. And I think a lot of comics agree that Robert set the standard for the newer generation of comics uh there's, there's Seinfeld and Lano and people like that um and uh I would say,, <clears throat> gets a little murky after that, but uh Rodney would be up there, and uh Lily, maybe you know, but it's hard to even limit it to four. But certain,
0: better than being asked, who's your favorite? No, I didn't want <laughs> that. I wouldn't even answer. I just want to put you <clears throat> on the spot there. Talk to me before we get into uh, the final stages of this podcast. Talk to me about there's something about you that uh, that is a complete original thing that no one in my life I've ever seen utilize this piece of equipment, and nobody since. I've met you. I've ever seen with this piece of equipment. You are famous for a monocle. Oh, <laughs> where did I the monocle? What you were going to say? Where did the monocle come from? How did it start? And was there ever a time in your life where you went without it? Yes, when I was up till I was about seven years old. But you know,
3: um, Barry, this this is uh, uh, monocle has become an integral part of my persona. Because back in the uh, '70s, early '70s, when I was still in New York, uh, I found that I couldn't read the checks the, uh, that the waitresses were making out for the uh, people, and they come over and they say, "Would you okay this?" And I wasn't wearing glasses, and I didn't like the sheriff in the in the old West. I didn't want to know I was going blind, so I just okay it. I had no idea what I was signing, and since I never wore a jacket or very rarely. I said, well, i got to do something, and I somehow came up with the idea of the monocle. And it became a great affectation, and it became very effective. Uh, coincidentally, uh, I've since had cataract surgery and don't need it anymore, except when I go out to restaurants where they try to cheat you, and I use the monocle. And I figure I've saved about four hundred and seventy-three thousand eight hundred dollars and twenty-seven cents over the years by being able to read the checks in restaurants.
0: With this monocle, I wouldn't even know where. If somebody said to me, "Listen, uh, your family's life depends on it. Go find me a monocle today," you know, I would. I wouldn't even know where. Where do you roll to find a monocle? Monocle shop. There's a monocle of shop. you
3: course. Yeah. You the Third Street Promenade?
0: How do you pull the hot women with a monocle?
3: Are you kidding? Works like a charm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> huh. All right. Oh. Let's uh let's let's go into the final roundup here. Okay. Tell me um your biggest disappointment professionally.
3: Oh, my biggest
0: disappointment professionally. Uh I I
3: don't really I, I you know, I've had so many ups that I can't think about the one or two things that didn't work out. Seriously. Uh you know, just um uh, You know, I've got f- uh, five grandchildren. They all live geographically, desirably close. Um But, you
0: know, we can all look at our—the thing about—one of the great things, if I could be so bold saying this without sounding uh, conceited, the great things about this podcast is it it shows people, not even in this business, but in this business, you know, the ups, the downs, how you persevere, And what happens when something happens where sort of the business, your business life kicks the shit out of you and you come back strong and stronger than ever. Now, one of the things you said, the fire, that was a disappointment, but there had to be something that that crushed you like a bug. And you thought, oh, my God, it's like I I don't know how I'm going to or people turning on you or or people who you worked with who you thought were your friends and stuck it to you. And you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe this happened to me. And, and that you came back from it and you persevered. So I think that's what what I'm well, saying. Well, the fire and the divorce, you know, happened.
3: Uh, the, the divorce was final in 79. So that means my income was cut off. Uh, and my daughters moved back to New York. And I was, you know, really depressed and very upset. And I'll never forget Dottie Archibald and her husband. Uh, decided to take me out to dinner with a group of friends, including Jay Leno. And they went to uh, Mateo's, which was very hot in those days. And I met him there. And I had a date. I guess I wasn't that depressed. Uh, Before I knew Alex and I had this young lady on my arm. And we walk in, and they'd been waiting 20 minutes already. And we waited another 20 minutes. And we said, hell with this joint. So I said, yeah, I feel like Let's go to that uh, pizza place on La La Cienega. Jay says, I got to go to work. I got a gig, and he leaves, and we all troop over to this place. Another half hour wait there. So at the time, there was a little Italian restaurant uh, right next to Schwab's on Sunset Boulevard. All right, let's go there. So we go in, and as fate would have it, the chef there knew me slightly. He was an actor, but also a good cook, I should say, and he became my next cook, (laughs) I was very depressed, but I hired a cook, stolen boy from this joint, and he was my chef for about two years. The chefs at the Improv are uh, classic stories in in themselves. Faith
0: is an amazing thing. Uh, Your proudest moment professionally.
3: Professionally?
0: Uh, I think it was, uh, there were two. One,
3: receiving an Ace Award uh, for the 20th anniversary uh, special we did for Showtime. Which I produced uh, with Alba Billy Crystal and Robin Williams, among others, and Robert Klein. Uh, But uh, I was honored by the LA Free Clinic with a roast at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel in 1989, I think. And uh, the master of ceremonies was Gary Marshall, and on the dais was. The
0: director, Gary Marshall. Gary
3: Marshall was Brandon Tartikoff, who was president of NBC at the time.
0: 28 years old, president of NBC. Jay
3: Leno, um, Roseanne and Tom, Roseanne Arnold and Tom Arnold. Um, Will Schreiner did some films for me, and Bette Midler sang four songs. Three of them were parodies of her songs about me. That was one of my great nights. But the thing that brought me to tears now I think about it was... Johnny Carson's—we so are you know, not, not close with Johnny personally, but we great affection for him, um, and he meant a lot to the Improv. We always got very nice plugs from him, and we went. Alex and I went to his last show, and we just—we didn't stay in the audience. We we were in the green room, and then we came out, and uh, we stood in the hallway there, right in front of the behind and right in front of the stage. And Bet Midler was the last guest on. And she told the story of how she auditioned for Johnny at the Johnny Victor Theater, this little theater in, in Radio City, back in New York. And I was her manager, Bud Freeman was my manager. And we went, and in the cab, my dress ripped in the scene, in the, in the tush. And she said, and then Beth's telling the story to Johnny. She says, and I said, We get out of the car cab. I said, Bud. What can I do? And and she says, give me your jacket. I'll wrap around my waist. And he said, well, what do you mean my jacket? What about my dignity? She says, (laughs) what about my ass? (laughs) So we went into the Johnny Victor thing, and some lady there sewed it up for her, and she sang, and then she sang um, uh, One for My Baby to Johnny, and Alex and I were just tearing. I mean, just bawling. It was, you know, I mean, here... Johnny Carson Show. She's talking about me on the last show. and It's very gratifying. What a what that's an honor that amazing.
0: is. Nice. Wow. I actually... Uh, Johnny uh, obviously means a lot to all of us. And yeah. I, I, I was given a gift as uh, one of the um, cue cards from his last show oh. that I have framed in my office. So that's really... That's an amazing story. Okay. So final thing here. Um, because a lot of times people think of you and they link you to the 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 stars from the past but there's a lot of stars today like louis ck and dave Chappelle and chris rock and jim gaffigan that you've also seen along the way that people don't realize you know i remember booking dave Chappelle on his first television spot i believe was evening at the improv with you So you've had a hand in all these peeps. Same with Louis C.K., I believe. One of the first things he ever did was an evening at the improv. And so first thing I want to ask you at the end here is when you see the comedians who are doing well now, like those people, when you first saw them, did you feel the same way that you felt like when you first saw uh, a Lily Tomlin or a or a Jerry Seinfeld is it the same feeling or is it because you've sort of not in the world of let's say what a lot of comedians are doing and a lot of alternative things it's not necessarily your lane or do you still see it when you see somebody if
3: if they appeal to me yeah i mean you know i mean uh, you're right a lot of comics are not trying to appeal to me at my age uh
0: and or my audience uh, or what i represent like who moves you now like what comics move you now of the newer generation that still make you laugh and well, you're proud
3: we, to saw, be- we saw Chappelle uh we were up in san francisco for a weekend just on a little vacation and bumped into a comic and said you know Chappelle's going on tonight at the um uh, what's that joint up there and the punchline yeah and i said great there we'll go and i called up the manager and He was very gracious and got us in. And uh, after the show, we go back. Did he make you pay for your mother? No. (laughs) Not even my wife. And we went backstage and saw Dave. And we're talking to Dave. And it was a rather big dressing room. And all of a sudden, the acoustical tile falls down in the sky sitting in the corner with two guys. And I I I said, well, congratulations. You now own the club. (laughs) The guy says, I already do. (laughs) But I got Dave his first movie.
0: Robin one, Hood, Men in Bad Movie. One man, yeah. Uh,
3: Mel Mel Brooks calls me up and he says, "Listen, I just lost Eddie Griffin. I have for this movie, he got an HBO deal. He can't do it. Do you have anybody you could recommend?" I said, "Mel, the guy just showed up three days ago from New York."
0: I remember that, and you actually called me at the time yeah. and told me that, and uh, and. Uh Oh, a lot to you, because that was the first time I ever got a chance to sit down with Mel Brooks. I asked him, what makes a successful movie comedy? If, what, what has to happen for you to have a successful movie? And he said, I need seven water cooler moments in 90 minutes. If I can have seven <laughs> moments, I've got a hit movie. And, uh, of course, now, if you have seven moments in a comedy movie, your movie's going to die. <laughs> you got to have seven moments in, like, seven minutes. Seven minutes. All right, so tell me what advice you would give to a young performer or comedian working anywhere around the country right now um, uh, that you believe how in the world are they going to go from where they are in whatever small town they are doing stand-up comedy and get to the point where they can get the attention of somebody like you and move the needle and then start going into film and television what what do they have to do to break through and firstly before you answer that speak to like young entrepreneurs of like what you somebody who has like a dollar and a dream and what your words of wisdom would be for them to get to the next level and to become hopefully and have the kind of career that you you've had
3: well uh answering your second question first uh for an entrepreneur don't come in the comedy club business we have enough <laughs> comedy clubs but if you can find something that makes you as happy as the comedy club business has made me uh and successful then boy you are lucky uh but it's not easy uh I look at a lot of friends and I wonder you know how they survived all these years doing what they've doing uh and as far as the comedians are concerned, um, practice, practice, practice. And stay in your small town as long as you can. Because you're not going to get on here. Uh, not too often. Certainly not the improv until you've got something to show us. It's worthwhile. And uh, speak in your own voice. Don't do Bob Newhart. <laughs> or better yet, don't do Barry Katz doing <laughs> Bob Newhart. That would be a disaster. That would be a disaster. It all comes full circle. Exactly.
0: Well, uh, do your own material. That's the advice for you. Do your own material. So, uh, Bud, this has been unbelievable. Uh, It's been incredibly enlightening. I just want to tell you all, before I say goodbye to Bud, that the 50th anniversary of the improv is coming up, a show that he produced with his good friend Judy Pastore. It's going to be on and Epics Mark and Mark Lano, his partner, and it's going to be on Epics first, and then we'll follow up on Comedy Central. It's going to be an amazing special. Bud Friedman, this has been incredible. I've had Thanks, an amazing Barry. time. So, you've been listening to another episode of Industry Standard with me. If you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you didn't like the show,
2: put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over